You are God, you are good. We've now gathered to hear from your word. In a complex passage to our ears on this day, may you take your word and penetrate our lives, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Colossians chapter 3, beginning at verse 22, the word of the Lord says this, Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything, and do it not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart, as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward, and it is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs, and there is no favoritism. Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair because you know that you also have a master in heaven. When we hear a passage like that in 2021, our sensibilities ask, why is that there? And some immediately move to begin to talk about what it means to be an employer and an employee. Paul did an outstanding job last week talking about these verses being a part of the household instruction that the Apostle Paul has given, where he's addressing wives, addressing husband, where kids who are there this morning listening, he's addressing you specifically in the way that you uh, fit into your household and how the Lord would have you live and act. But then he also talks to slaves because slaves are part of the household. They're a part of the people that are living within that community. This would mean a couple of things. One, as Paul addresses slaves, there are slaves in the church in Colossae. Paul's addressing them because they're there. But there are also masters, and the masters are typically both the fathers and the husbands. And so here, for the third time, Paul is addressing specifically the men who are masters. He's talking to them. And so we come to this today. There are numbers of things that we struggle with. There are nearly 40 million slaves in the world today. If this was to be read to them this morning, if they were reading it, how should they interpret it? What does that look like? What does it say about the Atlantic slave trade and the terrors of the 1800s and what that looked like? What should we do? But it's not just this passage. You find passages like this in Ephesians here, again in Peter, so you see it's from even another apostle, 1 Peter 2. Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters. Not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. Again, as Peter is speaking, obviously, he's speaking directly to slaves, which means slaves would have come to faith in Christ, and they are there in the congregations that Peter is speaking to. Remember, Peter, as he writes his epistle, is writing to congregations spread throughout Asia Minor. 4, verse 19 of 1 Peter 2, it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscience of God. But how is it to your credit if you are receiving a beating for doing wrong and you endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, it is commendable before God. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. And so here you have even Peter talking about even if you're being treated unfairly, remember, Christ was treated unfairly. We hear that, and we begin to think, why would Scripture ever talk in this manner? Why would the Bible ever address it like this? 
Why doesn't God say run away? Why doesn't God offer something different to slaves than remember your slaves under Christ? Why would he do that? Well, let me offer a few suggestions this morning. One thing that's important is this. Neither Paul nor Peter are endorsing slavery. They're not endorsing slavery. They're not saying this is the way it should be. They're simply speaking into the situation of their time. That's what's going on here. They're speaking into the situation of their time. It's important, as I already said, to note that Paul addresses slaves. Slaves would not have been addressed in any form of formal writing. But Paul does that. Why? He's already said so in Colossians, because in Christ there is no slave or free. In Christ, Paul's been very clear that when you gather as believers, that slave, as you gather in a, in a small group Bible study, as you gather as a church community, that is not a slave anymore. He is not your property. He's a brother or sister, or she's a sister in Christ. They're brothers and sisters in Christ. And so as Paul has already said that there's no, uh, there, there's, there, there's no slave or free in Christ, that we're all equal, no, no barbarian, no Scythian, in this portion he's addressing the household is saying, this doesn't mean that there still aren't roles. This doesn't mean that you don't still have some responsibilities. So a couple of things I want you to note. These are six things. These are what I would call uh, interpretive considerations. The first is this. Every text has a context. So these verses in Colossians are found in the chapter, chapter three of Colossians, right? And, and the way that you used to live, don't live anymore. The way that God has now called you to live, put on those things. Let these characteristics guide you. Now working its way into the way a household would function. Every text has a context. Not only is the, are these verses found in Colossians 3, they're found in the book of Colossians. They're found as part of Paul's letters. They're found in the New Testament. All of that becomes important. Second, every text has an author. This happens to be the Apostle Paul. So then you ask yourself, where else does he speak of this? Well, he does in the book of Ephesians, in a, in a, a letter that's very similar um, as Paul writes to the, book, to the church in Ephesus. Number three, every context is found in a specific genre of literature. That's incredibly important as you look at scripture. We're going to go through Genesis in a number of weeks. We're going to start that in March. We're going to spend a number of months in Genesis. The first few chapters of Genesis are written differently than the last number of chapters of Genesis. That's important to note. It's also important to note that narrative literature is very different than didactive literature. That's how the apostles wrote, write. And so we need to be thinking through when one portion of literature in scripture is written in a certain way, poetry and the Psalms, wise, pithy sayings in Proverbs and types of lit wisdom literature, that's very different in terms of interpretive principles than narrative literature out of Genesis or the book of Acts or didactic literature in books like Colossians, Ephesians, Philippians, or even many of the prophets, Isaiah, others like that. And so you need to remember we're in a specific portion of scripture that has a specific genre of literature. A couple of books that are written out, outstanding about this are by Stuart and Fee. One is How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. The other is How to Read the Bible Book by Book. Two excellent books I encourage every Christian to have in their library as they try to understand that. Number four, you use what's clear in Scripture to understand what's unclear. So there are things in Scripture that are incredibly clear, things that anchor us, that we understand. God created, we fell, God redeems. Redemption is found in the person and work of Jesus Christ. 
the Spirit of God indwells us. There are certain things in Scripture, certain themes that are entirely clear and consistent throughout the entire Bible. And we come back to those things that are very clear when it comes to things that are unclear or things that are hard to understand. Seeing if those anchoring points can offer us any insights to that which is confusing or complicated. Number five, you look for movement in Scripture as it's revealed progressively and at times specifically. So you look for movement in Scripture. Scripture is written over a period of about 1,600 years. It's given to us from, with 66 books from over 40 authors. So it's also written in different cultures, in different contexts, in different time periods. All of, all of that's important. And so you want to be thinking about, as God is writing this to us, do I see any movement on these issues? There is movement. Example of movement would be in the Old Testament. We offered, or the, or the Old Testament believers offered animal sacrifices as part of the perpetuation of the wrath of God. Why don't we do that today? Why is there not an altar in our church today at 500 James Street to sacrifice animals? Is it just because it's illegal? No. It's because Christ is the sacrifice and his sacrifice is greater than all sacrifices. And lastly, number six, you want to depend on the whole Holy Spirit. You want to depend on the Holy Spirit. One of the things I think that's really important to note is the way the world works. Even in our world today, if you take a look at the majority of the population of our world, you live one of three ways. You work, you beg, or you starve. You work, you beg, or you starve. I've been talking to a friend in Mexico off and on through this pandemic, and as we've talked, I've asked him about the protocols they've had in place there, what they've shut down, what they've not shut down. And on a number of occasions, he said to me, well, we've shut very little down because if we shut most of our economy down, most people would simply starve to death. There's no social structure. There's no infrastructure, safety net to care for people if they're not working. That was true in Jesus' day. That was true in the time of the Old Testament. If you didn't work, you begged. If you didn't work or beg, you starved. Even today, how many people are going to bed hungry without food? Estimates would put it at 800 or so million people today. That's a massive amount of the world's population of just over 7 billion people. That nearly one in seven people on our planet today will go to bed hungry tonight. More than that, if you include the week, if you go through the week, it would be 2.4 people on our planet will be hungry at some point and hungry not in terms of, oh, I had breakfast, but I missed lunch and now I'm starving for supper. Hungry in that they have not eaten for a day or two or longer. 2.4 people out of every, on the planet, out of every seven, will not have had enough nourishment within a week's period. And so when you begin to think through that, you ask yourself, what was slavery? Well, slavery occurred in one of two ways, typically. Slavery at that time occurred as an act of war. One nation warring over another nation, and as that nation warred over another nation, they took prisoners, those prisoners became their slaves. Another type of slavery was this, and this was incredibly common. You would sell yourself as a slave to someone that you were indebted to. You owed someone so much money, whatever money that was, you began to accumulate this debt. This debt became unpayable. You couldn't pay them off. You found that you were unable to manage your household well. And so you would sell yourself and your family as slaves to them. 
In other cultures and other places, there were no rules around what that meant and looked like. But God, in his wisdom, granted an accountability to how his people should act and live. So hear this. As you look at the Old Testament, and I take you through some passage, the Hebrew servitude was voluntary security against poverty in which freedom was offered after a time of service. So Hebrews, the Jewish people, their servitude, them selling themselves into slavery was a voluntary security against poverty in which freedom was offered after a time of service. Note Exodus 21. If you buy a Hebrew servant, he is to serve you for six years, but in the seventh year he shall go free without paying anything. If he comes alone, he is to go free alone. If he has a wife when he comes, she is to go with him. So you would sell yourself into slavery, and in the seventh year of you serving, whether you paid off all of your debt or not, whether you still owed money or not, your master was to set you free. And if your family came with you, they were to set them free as well. God's trajectory in slavery, in the provision for people selling themselves to others so that they and their families didn't starve to death, was always to work for a time so that you could again be set free. In the Leviticus 25, it talks about this year of Jubilee. You were to count off seven Sabbath years, seven times seven years, for the seventh Sabbath year amounts to a period of 49 years. Then have on the trumpet sounded everywhere on the 10th day of the seventh month, on the day of atonement, sound the trumpet throughout the land, consecrate that 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all of its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you. Each of you is to return to your family property and to your own clan. The 50th year shall be a jubilee to you. Do not sow, do not reap what grows of itself or harvest the untended vines. It is a jubilee. It is to be holy for you. Eat only what is taken directly from the fields. This is a year of jubilee. Everyone is to return to their own property. So if your family had been in slavery and you were in slavery up to the year of Jubilee, not only were you to be set free, but in the year of Jubilee, everyone's land was to be given back to them. And in aggregate culture, that is critical because you live off of the land. I mean, the only time Amy and I ever experienced this to this extent were the few weeks we were in Kenya. And when the pastor of the local congregation took us around to visit villagers all around um, outside of of where we had been staying, you realize people live off the land. That was their job. They simply lived off the land. They raised cattle. They, they, they raised chickens. They, they raised all kinds of animals. They grew crops, and that is how they lived. We happened to be there during a bumper year. The, the rain, the sun had had a perfect season, and so everything was in bounty. No one was starving when we were there. Everyone was doing well. In fact, I saw it incredibly specifically when I was there the second time at the large church in, in Kenya. They'd asked me to help take up the first fruit offering. I'd never experienced anything like this before. So I'm there with the elders before the second service, the first fruit offering. There was multiple service for this congregation. We're praying and people were bringing in their first fruit offering. And someone came in while we were praying and said, this is chicken. It was in a bag. Bag was placed in front of me. We're praying, and all of a sudden the bag began to move, and I didn't realize there was live chicken in the bag. I thought it was dead chicken. It was live. And after the service that day, I was to auction off all of the goods that came in, and people that were wealthier in the congregation 
bought them so that those that had less and were living agrarianly off of the land, they would know that they had just given the Lord their first fruit and it was a mighty offering to him. That's so different from us today. But God knew that his people during that season time would be living off the land. So he says, out of seven years, you're to free the slaves. Out of 50 years, their land, the clan that they grew up in, they're to return to it. And that land is to be restored to them. It's to be given back. Exodus 21, anyone who beats their male or female slave with a rod must be punished if the slave dies as a direct result. They're not to be punished if the slave recovers after a day or two since the slave is their property. So you see, in similar ways, the slave is still their property, but if the slave dies, then they must be punished. That was not found, that is not found anywhere in any other historical account. God was regulating. People killed their slaves on a, 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 it was a regular, habitual thing that occurred in other cultures. And God said, not in my culture. Not in my culture. Leviticus 25, again, if any of your fellow workers becomes poor and they sell themselves to you. Do not make them work as slaves. God even says, don't even treat your own people, the other, the other Israelites, as slaves if they sell themselves to you. Treat them as hired workers or as temporary residents. They are to work until the year of Jubilee. They and their children are to be released, and they will go back to their clans, to the property of their ancestors, because the Israelites are my servants whom I brought out of Egypt. They must not be sold as slaves. Do not rule over them ruthlessly, but fear your God. So what's going on here? Well, I think in the previous passage in Exodus 21, God is speaking of when the Israelites would actually bring other nations into slavery. And he says, even them you cannot kill. And he says, of your own people, he's saying, don't even treat them as slaves. If they, if they, if they sell themselves to you, treat them as hired workers, because this is temporary. This is not to be permanent. They are to be set free. Again, I won't read all this, but in Jeremiah 34, God punishes Israel for not freeing slaves, for not following his word. It's one of the reasons he punishes them. And then in 1 Timothy 1, you find this. We all know that the law is not made for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebellious, for the ungodly and the sinful, for the unholy and the irreligious. Note this, for slave traitors, liars, and perjurers, for whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. That conforms to the gospel concerning the glory of the blessed God, which he entrusted to me. He calls slave trading contrary to sound doctrine. That's what Paul says in 1 Peter. So you come to this and you realize as we, as we kind of work through this and try to understand, so what's going on here, that at times there are things that are challenging to understand in Scripture. Example would be in the Ten Commandments. You come to the Ten Commandments and you see that there's interpretive issues in the New Testament. We come to issues like murder and Jesus says, I'll tell you the truth. It's not just that you shouldn't take someone's life. If you hate them, it's as if you've murdered them. He applies these in a whole new way. The only New Testament or, 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 or Ten Commandments, the only command of the Ten Commandments that is altered in the New Testament is the command of the Sabbath. It's altered in the New Testament. Freedom is given around the Lord's Day. We move from Saturday to Sunday, the day of resurrection. And as that happens, God's people are told that there's more freedom around what that looks like. In books like uh, Colossians, we looked at that earlier in this book, and books like Romans. The Old Testament law, I've already mentioned it. 
but there's very specific laws around sacrificial sacrifices and, and the sacrificial system that are obliterated by the sacrifice of Christ, that we don't fall anymore. That's interpretation. We understand that because of books like Romans and Hebrews and what they're saying to us and how we understand who Christ is and what he's accomplished. So we no longer need to sacrifice an animal because Christ is the sacrifice. We come to a book like Proverbs, and for years I, I've had people come to me struggling with Proverbs because they claim Proverbs as promises. They claim something like Proverbs 22, 6, train a child up in the way he should go, and when he is old he will not depart from it. And they come to me and say, we have four kids. We raised them all the same way. Three of them are walking with the Lord. One of them is not. We've claimed this promise. What's going on? And promises in Proverbs are not promises. They're actually generalities. Proverbs aren't promises. They're wise, pithy sayings that God gives as a generality of if you typically do this, this will typically happen. If you typically live like this, this is typically what will occur. They're wisdom. It's wisdom literature to be interpreted and understood in a certain way. And so as we come to these interpretive issues, the same is true in this text. So let's look at it for a few minutes. God here speaks of their manner of service. Slaves, obey your earthly masters. So he says to the slaves of that day in the congregation, you are to be in obedience to your earthly masters in everything. And you do it not only when their eye is on you so that they look upon you favorably, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. He reminds the slaves that they have a greater master, the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. You're to work out of reverence for him. And then he says this, verse 23. So whatever you do, work at it with all of your hearts as working for the Lord, not for human masters. Again, he reminds them, you're working for the Lord, not just human masters. Notice this. Since you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as your reward. Now that would have really struck them. No slave was in anyone's will. No slave would ever receive an inheritance. And for Paul to say, there's an inheritance coming your way. You work hard for your masters because there's an inheritance coming and it's an inheritance from the Lord was great motivation for them. It reminded them that though they may have felt abandoned and neglected as they sold themselves into slavery so that they wouldn't starve to death, that they actually had been adopted into a family, a greater family, the family of God, and that the father who is now their father as they're now children of his, has an inheritance for them, one that can never perish, spoil, or fade. It's a reward that he's going to give them, an inheritance that will come their way. Remember, it is Christ you are serving. And then verse 25, so anyone who does wrong will be paid for the wrongs that they've done. There is no favoritism. Now God's about to transition to talk to masters. And here he says there is no favoritism. He's reminding the slaves that they are not in a better position in Christ than the masters. He's reminding the slaves that they're not in a worse condition in Christ than their masters. He's reminding the masters that they're not in a better position in Christ than the slaves. He's reminding the masters that they're not in a worse position in Christ than the slaves. That their brothers and sisters in Christ, they both have a master. That's why in chapter 4, Paul says, so masters... Make sure you provide for your slaves with what is right and fair. Be just, because you know you also have a master in heaven. Now, this is something we can apply to our own work ethic. Just briefly, do you only work hard when your boss is watching, or do you also work hard when he's not there? 
Do you work for the Lord at work? Do the people at work actually see that you serve a greater good? You have a greater taskmaster than your employer. If you're an employer, how do you treat your employees? Is it fair and just? I believe you can apply the text that way, but that's not specifically what the text was written for. There's other passages that talk about your work ethic. This here is specific to slaves. And so as we come to it, one of the things that we should be understanding as we've looked at the other passage is God always had freedom as an intended outcome for those in slavery. Either freedom in the seventh year or an ultimate freedom in the 50th year where all of their land, everything that was taken from them and their family was given back. And so in that, freedom is always the trajectory in Scripture for slavery. So then we need to be people whenever we find slavery in the world, wherever it would be, when there's 40-some-odd million slaves in the world today that's advocating with organizations like IJM for freedom. Because freedom is what God is calling us to. Not just freedom in Christ, though that be important, but freedom from the tyranny of slavery. Critical. So how do we understand this? Let me say a few things as I close up. One, don't be afraid of, of the hard text. Don't be afraid of the hard text. Rely on God's Spirit. Dig deep into Scripture. Because if you're afraid of the hard text, when people come to you, they're going to be dismissing your God because you're not willing to dig for some of those texts. Recently, over the years, we read Scripture with Ethan in, when he was born for a number of years until we taught him to read Scripture, same with our daughter Abby. Um, and now the twins are going to bed a bit late, and so we've decided to move kind of the bedtime routine to dinner. So every night at dinner, as a whole family, we're reading Scripture together and talking. We started a little while ago in Genesis, and my kids are like, great. But as we are going through Genesis, they're like, so, Dad, what happened to the dinosaurs? Dad, like, so who did Adam and Eve's kids marry, Dad? Like, what, what's going on here? Uh, Dad, what about, and all of these questions are coming up that I'm going to answer when we get into the book of Genesis in a few weeks. But as parents, and we're dialoguing with our kids, we can't be afraid of hard questions. When we're discipling someone, we can't be afraid of hard questions. Sometimes things are going to come our way as we try to understand and interpret Scripture, and they're going to be challenging, and they're going to be difficult. And it means we're going to have to dig. It means we're going to have to rely on God's Spirit. It means that the anchoring points of our faith, that God exists, that He's created, that we have fallen in choosing to rebel, that He is redeeming, and that He has revealed Himself supremely in the person of Jesus Christ and in his word, keep us anchored in our faith, though there may be things that we don't quite understand and are confusing and complicated that we need to dig at. The anchoring points keep us founded and grounded in Christ. So today, as we close, I encourage you not to avoid the hard passages of Scripture. I encourage you to dig at them to see if you can come to an understanding of why God has written them, why they're in the text, how we understand them, so that as you're engaged with non-believers who have questions about them, as we engage with those that we're discipling, including our own children and families, that we're able to direct them to Christ and point them as to why this would be in his word. Would you pray with me? God, we are so thankful for your word, and we're so thankful that you have granted us to it. Spirit of God, you are in us. And we pray as you are in us that you would guide us in understanding your word. Sometimes it's hard, we admit that. 
And yet it is always true and it is always good because it's from you. So guide us as we long to understand it and convey it well. We ask in Christ's name, amen.